0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Rand Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Leder Maynard about his book titled Ideology and Mass Killing, which is a fascinating book that helps us understand better the role of ideology in mass killings like genocides or campaigns of state terror, um, which may sound like something we already know a lot about, but actually, as this book demonstrates, there are some clear... Um, gaps in a lot of the prevailing views. Um, And it's really quite helpful that this book lays out an alternative way to really systematically theorise how um, ideology plays into mass killings across um, a range of really intriguing case studies. So I'm really interested to interview the author about this book, Dr. Jonathan Leader Maynard. Welcome welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much. I'm a a long-time listener to the New Books Network, so it's a delight to really finally be on the show.
0: Wonderful. Um, could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you wrote this book?
1: Yeah, so I'm a lecturer in international politics at King's College uh, London. Um, the book I wrote uh, over a long period of time, as I'll, I'll kind of explain in a second, but um, over kind of two main posts, one previously I was at the University of Oxford um, as a lecturer there, and then for the fi- final kind of year of this book, uh, I was in my, my first couple of years uh, here at King's. Um, and I've been interested in really the worst things that human beings do to one another for a long time. <laughs> um, since before I came to university, really. Um, and as with so many people with their first book, this this book emerged out of research that I did for my doctorate. Um, but really, I think my... I think about the book as, as kind of taking place in two phases because I wrote the the, the doctorate and um, planned to do some modifications to the doctorate and fairly swiftly release it as a book. In the end, I completely rewrote the, the doctorate and wrote essentially a new book based um, in large part on the research that I'd done um, at PhD level. Um, but what, so, so there's sort of two parts to the answer, I guess. What, what brought me to the subject was this fascination with the, um, Genocides, war crimes, these kind of worst, most extreme forms of political violence in world history. Um, And in thinking about why people engage in such crimes, not just, I think a lot of the time when we ask that question, why do people engage in in such crimes? Often people are talking about literally the frontline killers. Why, how are people able to commit the kind of most terrible atrocities to, you know, innocent, unarmed uh, men, women and children? Um, that did not really interest me. But I was also interested in the kind of more political dimension as to why do these campaigns happen in the first place? Um, I often... It, it, the answer to those two questions is not the same. Um, why do ordinary people participate? Why do kind of killers kill? And why do these campaigns of mass killing get organised? So I was really interested in, in kind of studying those crimes and addressing that kind of question of politically, why do these things occur? And I was very you know super fascinated and impressed by the research that I engaged with that was already existing out there but I found myself persistently frustrated by conversations about ideology which I was sort of independently interested in. Um, I found that so much of the literature it seemed to me thought about ideology in very crude terms. Um, Quite a simplistic conversation was being had about basically were the people who engage in mass killings kind of ideological fanatics, true believers driven by ideological belief to engage in violence, or were they essentially ideologically uninterested, um, driven by much more mundane motives. And that just felt like a complete false dichotomy to me and an overly binary distinction. So that was kind of what got me into the project, thinking, trying to trying to do a project thinking in a more sophisticated, subtle way about the difference that ideology makes. When I then finished the doctorate, I then started engaging with more and more work from a field that I'd never engaged with before, which was conflict studies where debates about mass killing were also happening but happening in a slightly different way Um, in this field there was basically no attention to ideology at all it was just ignored there wasn't even really much of a debate um, about it and so then i started to engage much more with kind of theories that were being produced in conflict studies engaging them as well but still kind of motivated by the idea that it just didn't feel to me that people were getting ideology It, it felt to me that again that ideology was either dismissed for very very crude reasons or it was kind of assumed to be relevant, but in a very kind of vague or, or simplistic uh, way. So that felt to me that there was a real need for um, a, a kind of project to think in, in a more serious way about the difference that ideology might make. Um, and so that's kind of the origins of, of, of uh, the book. And in the end, it took me a lot longer <laughs> than I had originally intended. But um, but uh, but that was in part because there were sort of so many new groups of scholars and, and um Broad areas of research literature that I, in the end, wanted to engage and bring into the book,
0: and you do bring into the bring them in. It is a very thorough book, um, which does make it longer. We we discussed that briefly before we started recording, um, but quite worthwhile. Um, I found it really brought a lot of things into conversation that um, don't necessarily get talked about in the same sort of way, um, which makes it really useful. But it does mean we do need to lay some foundations first before we can talk. More about your um theory and ideas so i'm wondering if you can talk us through um, how you define ideology and mass killing
1: mm. i'll start with mass killing first because i think that's the easier <laughs> um one so mass killing i don't think there's not a huge fight in in amongst scholars about what we mean by mass killing i don't think um my definition is that a mass killing is a large-scale coordinated campaign of lethal violence, which systematically targets civilians. Um, There are other definitions out there, but they're all kind of agreed that we're talking about big campaigns of systematic violence um, that target civilians. So that kind of distinguishes mass killing from, I guess, a couple of or, or a few other forms of violence. It distinguishes it from kind of battlefield warfare, which doesn't target civilians. It distinguishes it from much lower level forms of violence against civilians. So most terrorist campaigns or terrorist attacks wouldn't constitute mass killings. They're just too small. Um, And it also distinguishes it from kind of sporadic, uncoordinated, unsystematic violence against civilians. Um, A kind of important point that a lot of scholars make is that most real-world cases. In a lot of real-world cases of of large-scale violence against civilians, the perpetrators claim that what's going on is kind of spontaneous and bottom-up and sporadic and that there's no real government responsibility or plan behind it. And usually that's not true. Usually really large-scale cases don't happen without a degree of, of... coordination but in principle you can have some some forms of violence which are much less coordinated and systematic so that's kind of my conception of of mass killing the only real difference you the the, the more major difference you get in the literature is between kind of what scale what, what do we mean by large scale um, and I'm not really interested in saying numerical thresholds. It's not important to my research methodology to do that. Um, but I sort of roughly speaking, I'm talking about cases that um, involve something on the order of 10,000 or more civilian deaths in the space of a year. Um, uh, Benjamin Valentino, another kind of big scholar of mass killings, in his his very very influential book uh, Final Solutions, he uses a very similar criterion of fifty thousand deaths over five years or more. Um, again, I'm not, <laughs> I don't really think we should put too much emphasis on this kind of almost bean counting approach. But 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 you know we're talking about really large large scale cases. So at the upper limit, things like Mao's Cultural Revolution or the Holocaust would would be mass killings. Um, but there are a range of lower level cases with sort of death tolls in the, in the 50,000 to 100,000 um, uh, region. And obviously those, you know, those lower scale cases still represent some of the most extreme campaigns of violence in world history. So that's, that's sort of mass killing. Um, and that's what I mean, I mean by that. Now, ideology is much more complicated. Um, it's sort of famous, a term that is famous for how much scholars disagree or differ in the way that they define it. Um, I'm gonna simplify a lot and say, basically there are three types of definitions you get of ideology. The first are are kind of rooted in a Marxist tradition, which are kind of what are often called pejorative definitions of ideology. So this is where ideology is seen as something intrinsically negative. So ideologies are, for example, systems of ideas that legitimate a dominant order and rationalize its repression of those who are disadvantaged within the existing political order. That's a kind of classic pejorative definition of ideology. The second set of definitions are those that kind of see ideologies as a very special type of highly systematic, logically consistent, sort of well-formulated belief system. Um, that approach, that sort of conception of ideology is still very influential in some branches of political science, particularly branches focused on kind of electoral politics. Um, it's a sort of old debate about to what ex- well, it, I, say, I say debate, it's kind of it's a more a matter of consensus now, but there's a kind of old debate about um, to what extent ideology is really just confined to political elites versus to what extent does it kind of spread into the mass publics. So and the kind sort of consensus these days is that if, if you're talking about ideology in that very, very systematic sense, um, it's largely an elite phenomenon. Most ordinary people don't really think about politics that way. Um, I don't like either of those conceptions of ideology. Um, I opt for one in a third category. and the third category, we might just call sort of general conceptions of ideology that that don't um, attach ideology to either of those key properties of the first two categories. So they don't assume that ideology is necessarily negative or or damaging or bad, nor do they necessarily assume that ideology is highly systematic and well um, formulated. Um, Although I have a full definition in the book, um, which I won't, I won't give because it's a little bit long. But the, the basic shorthand I often use for my definition is distinctive political worldviews. That's what I mean by ideology, or at least political um, ideology. And um, to give sort of one more line on that, the reason I prefer those kind of definitions, there are many reasons I prefer those kind of broad definitions of ideology. But the simplest one of all is that the other two conceptions just aren't consistent with the sort of everyday things almost all of us call ideology. Pretty much everyone says socialism is an ideology. Pretty much everyone says that conservatism or liberalism or communism or fascism are ideologies. And these days, we just know that those systems of ideas don't necessarily take the form. In fact, they fairly rarely take the form of highly systematic, well-organized, well-formulated, explicit belief systems. Most people who call themselves liberals or socialists or conservatives don't have that kind of worldview. It's much more of a kind of... um, identifiable, but sort of looser patterning, bundling of, of ideas and narratives and values and sentiments and preferences. Um, and similarly, not all ideologies have to be kind of negative, or at least I wouldn't want to assume that. So I prefer this more general um, definition. And I would I would argue that that more general conception of ideology is increasingly becoming dominant um, across different sort of fields of research. But again, there are some fields where, where there are exceptions. So the sort of question I ask in my book is sort of what role distinctive political worldviews play in shaping patterns of uh, mass killing. And although under my kind of broad definition of ideology, um, ideologies are pretty ubiquitous, right? They're normal, almost everyone has some kind of distinctive political worldview. But that by no means means that that ideologies in this sense necessarily matter. There are lots of aspects of politics which are not particularly affected by people's distinctive political worldviews. All sorts of groups um, uh, fight elections, and they often fight elections in quite similar ways, or at least there are some dynamics of election fighting that that, that are pretty similar across different ideological groups. So it remains a pretty open question in my view um, uh, what, uh, what a difference uh, that distinctive political worldviews, ideologies as I call them, uh, actually make to, to mass killings.
0: Thank you for explaining that um, and not just explaining your own definition, but situating it within um, the debates. And that kind of goes back to what we've already said about bringing the conversations together, uh, which I think really helps. So given that there is kind of an open question to some degree, um, and obviously it's the one you sort of tackle in your book of kind of, hang on a second, what do these things have to do with each other? Um, I'm wondering if you can outline for us kind of the causal argument you're making around ideology and mass killings.
1: Again, I think it's probably best for me to start by answering that question by saying what I think the sort of main views out there in existing research are. Um, and I sort of, in the, in, the, in the book, I kind of divide, I'm being a little simplistic here, but I sort of divide the dominant views about ideology's role in mass killing into basically two camps. Um, the first camp is a sort of traditional literature that says ideology does matter in mass killings, indeed, sees ideology is very central to, to mass killings, genocides, mass atrocities. Um, and it sees them as central because it, it it presents mass killings as kind of rooted in very radical political projects um, to sort of transform society. Um, so, you know, very, very classically here, the Nazis clearly sought to radically alter the entire fabric of German society. They adhered to a kind of totalitarian uh, worldview. Um, and a major important part of that worldview was a kind of fairly longstanding ambition um, to purge the Jews um, in some sense from, from German society. And, and there were a lot of other things they wanted to do as well, but it was this kind of radical ideological political vision to change society. And for this sort of traditional view of mass killings, that's the sort of typical, I mean, obviously the Holocaust isn't typical itself, but that's the kind of typical pattern. The idea is that you have regimes with these radical projects to transform societies. And because um, many kind of groups will get away in in the way of those plans or don't fit in with um, the kind of ideologues vision of the ideal society, they then try and purge um, those groups from society. And that's why they engage in in mass killing. And ideology, therefore, functions very centrally in this story as a kind of motivation, the central motivation, a political motivation um, for violence that, that drives violence by people who have fairly strong levels of belief in the ideology. So that's the first camp, drawn quite simplistically, but hopefully helpfully. Um, The second camp is what I call sceptical perspectives. And sceptical perspectives usually don't say that ideology is literally completely irrelevant in mass killings, but basically don't think it's very important. They think it's pretty marginal um, uh, to why mass killings occur. I I think that there are two main versions of that argument. Um, Version one says basically that mass killings... Although they might look like these really, you know, they are really extreme forms of violence and they might therefore look like they're kind of rooted in pretty crazy worldviews. Actually, in a certain way, they have a rationality to them. They're largely serving pretty pragmatic interests. Regimes use mass killings to kind of secure um, uh, themselves in power, to win wars, to um Uh, acquire sort of material resources to kind of extract material resources from certain populations Um, mass killing can kind of be an instrumental tool that's useful for these um, uh, goals. That's one kind of reason, you know, so if if you hold that view, you would probably say, well, okay, so it's not about distinctive ideological projects. It's just about being quite ruthless in pursuing these goals. The other kind of more skeptical view, which I call situationist, I call that first group rationalist skeptics and I call the second group situationist skeptics, the second group of skeptics, Um, situationists, are those I'm using that label really to refer to a, a pretty diverse literature, but often very influenced by social psychology that has done a lot of research on the way in which individuals often come to participate, whether at an elite level or a kind of ordinary rank and file kind of on the ground killers uh, level, um, come to participate in violence through kind of social pressures, a lot of hugely influential work done in social psychology and kind of the, uh, well, stretching back to the fifties, but particularly in the, in the seventies and eighties that showed sort of how, um, Relatively easily, we could get people to engage in quite violent or seemingly abusive behavior if they were sort of told to do so by figures of authority or if they were in a group whose other members seemed to participate, um, uh, were willing to participate in such violence. And often the individual would sort of, even if they didn't believe violence was justified, would kind of surrender their their own conscience and just go along with what they were told to do or what those around them would um, would do. So the, the argument I'm sort of making is an intervention to some extent in that debate, although obviously there are some other positions that scholars offer. Um, and I'm sort of saying that there is an impo- there are important kernels of truth to, to both the, the sort of traditional yes, ideology matters views and both of those sceptical uh, views. But I think all of them get it wrong in important um, ways. And I think the reason why they get it wrong in important ways is because going back to where we started, I I think that their kind of assumptions about how ideology would make a difference are too simplistic. Um, And I think they're too simplistic in two main ways. So the first is that both sides of the debate tend to associate ideology largely with kind of deep political convictions. If we say ideology matters, the assumption is, well, that must matter because people really believe in it. And that gives them the motive to go out and engage in violence. And I just think that's an error. Um, I think, a huge amount of the time we see ideologies having massive impacts on politics even in cases where either people don't really deeply believe in them they don't have really strong belief in them um, uh, or in situations where there might be um, uh, uh, degrees of, of belief but also a range of other reasons why they might kind of follow what an ideology is prescribing them to do but without kind of being fanatical um, so I think we need to think more kind of in a more sophisticated way about how ideologies make a difference to kind of address this debate. And the way I try and do that in the book is I I, I kind of I deploy this concept of what I call ideological infrastructures. Um, and the basic argument here is that ideologies shape, can shape political behavior, including political violence, through a number of different causal mechanisms. Some people might go along with an ideology because they deeply believe in it. Some people might go along with an ideology because they've sort of more at a much more shallow level accepted and taken on board some of its narratives or claims, but without very kind of committed deep levels of conviction. They kind of are like, okay, yeah, sure. That narrative sounds sort of plausible to me. And in tandem with other motives that might enable me to go along with what an ideology is demanding, such as participation in a, in a campaign of violence. But equally some people might go along with an ideology precisely out of the kind of conformist, Um, doing what others around you are doing kind of dynamics that I was mentioning earlier, social psychologists have been very interested in. And some people might go along with an ideology because it's actually sort of instrumentally useful to them. The ideology is kind of a tool um, that they can uh, use. So for example, perhaps they go along with Nazi ideology because doing so advances their careers, or perhaps they employ certain uh, communist justifications of violence because doing so is a way to build political um, uh, support these are also reasons why you might use an ideology and and go along with what an ideology is saying in some sense. So I think that, um, and I think most people act out of all of those mechanisms to some extent, (laughs) kind of each of them, there's elements of deep belief, elements of kind of taken for granted or shallower level belief elements of just kind of conformity and elements of more instrumental opportunism and usage of the ideology. So I think what tends to happen in, in cases where mass killing uh, um, occurs, is that certain kinds of justificatory ideology, an ideology that provides some justifications for the violence, sort of pull on each of those causal levers and and do so in mutually reinforcing ways to encourage actually not your sort of one kind of perpetrator, one true believer model of perpetrator um, to engage in violence, but a whole range of different kinds of people um, uh, uh, to engage in violence. You have this quite diverse, we kind of know from research on mass killing that the people who actually carry it out, both at the elite level and at the kind of, again, the kind of grassroots rank and file level, tend to be pretty diverse. They're not all the same. They don't all have the same mindset. They don't all act out of the same motives. And what I think ideology does is kind of bind diverse groups um, of people diverse kinds of perpetrators into a collective campaign of violence through these different kinds of, of causal mechanisms, these different kinds of causal roles for ideology. So to, to kind of refer to my more metaphorical language, the, 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 the violence of a mass killing campaign depends on a kind of ideological infrastructure to bind it um, uh, together, an infrastructure that depends on sort of belief, more tacit, low level acceptance, conformity, and more instrumental um, opportunism. So then the, the, the sort of final part of the argument then is that different kinds of groups or military um, forces or secret security services or just regimes and governments have different kinds of ideological infrastructure. And certain kinds of ideological infrastructure, particularly those that I call limitationist, that, that kind of involve important ideas about violence being limited and constrained by um, various kinds of strategic calculation or, or moral um, norms. Those kind of infrastructures will tend to restrain mass killing and discourage um, uh, groups and regimes from engaging um, in it. Um, other kinds of um, ideological infrastructures that I call hard line um, uh, by contrast, tend to contain ideas that, that make it easier to justify um, mass killing and thereby, through sort of various causal mechanisms, make it more likely that mass killing um, can occur. Um, and then also, if a mass killing does occur, the kind of character of that ideological infrastructure will often make an important difference to the kind of mass killing that we see. So a regime with a kind of deeply radical ethno-nationalist um, ideological infrastructure is likely to engage in violence of a somewhat different form than a regime with a communist um, ideological infrastructure, for example. And then a lot of the book is kind of about unpacking these, both these different kinds of causal mechanisms and the different kinds of ideologies, different kinds of hardline ideologies um, that might encourage mass killing and the kind of ways in which they make a difference to the observable patterns of violence um, by influencing the behavior of kind of political elites, ordinary on the ground killers, um, and also uh, uh, societies, sort of social groups and, and supportive groups uh, more generally.
0: So that's exactly what I'd love to ask you about next, now that you've laid out... Um, very much kind of what your argument is how it is in discussion and debate um, with existing trains of thought um, about this idea of kind of once we think about ideology um, having some sort of involvement with uh, the mass killing kind of happening right as you said there are multiple different ways that this can work um, and multiple kind of different kinds of ideologies there's not just one sort of way Um, but I'm wondering if you can maybe now discuss a bit about what you've kind of just briefly teased us with the idea of ideology shaping the character of mass violence, um, in addition to just sort of helping us understand kind of in what sorts of circumstances it may or may not be more or less likely to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it, perhaps it's best again, to sort of let, let me start again with the skeptics, right? One of the reasons why I think ideology is important. Um, th- those that don't tend to attend to ideology much, I think they often identify important conditions, Setting scenarios in which we might not be surprised that ideology, um, sorry, that mass killings occur. So you know there are reasons why, in a certain kind of conflict, um, there might be incentives of a certain kind to, to sort of target civilians to help you um, uh, win a civil war, say, or win a war. Um, it might be the case that a regime under threat will use mass killing somewhat predictably or predictably is too strong. But, but you know, we might not be that surprised that certain regimes would use um, large scale violence to try and keep themselves um, in power. Um, the thing uh, the, the problem, I think, with those kind of arguments is there's just so much about the resulting violence that they can't explain. Um, uh, for a start, there are many regimes in similar positions or many groups in similar kinds of conflicts that just don't employ mass killing uh, to those kind of ends. Um, but even if we even if we just look at those, the, the regimes that or the groups that do, you know, we say, say, for example, take Nazi Germany. Perhaps we find it somewhat unsurprising. Somewhat unsurprising. I think most of us would still find it pretty surprising, but somewhat unsurprising that a kind of really authoritarian and racist state in war, highly dictatorial, with lots of power, with a pretty um, uh, uh, ruthless leadership, uh, would be willing to uh, engage in pretty large-scale abuses of civilians. That might not surprise us enormously. But that just doesn't take you very far in explaining why the Nazis targeted the Jews specifically, or why they also targeted the disabled or homosexuals, or why they targeted the Sinti and the Roma. Why they targeted certain classes and and, and, um, uh, uh, Russian and Slavic civilians in certain places and certain contexts, but not others. Why certain kinds of groups, um, such as particularly um, uh, uh, local uh, populations in the Baltic states, were very willing to take part in these killings, whereas in other areas they really weren't. All of these are really the substantial, you know, really substantially important questions about mass killings and why they take the form that they do. And whilst, again, I I don't think ideology is by any means the only factor here, it just is so implausible, I think to suggest that it doesn't make a difference. Um, Again, that's kind of clearest in some of the most infamous cases. So, you know, I think very few people would argue that, you know, the Holocaust is not shaped by Nazi ideology. That's sort of really obvious and a matter of consensus at some level. Um, But I think that you can make very similar points about most other um, uh, cases. Uh, We might talk in a little bit. One of the cases in the book is, is Guatemala. In Guatemala, the the, the military regime in Guatemala in the 1960s, 1970s and 1980s is fighting a left-wing insurgency. In some sense, that's a kind of classic scenario in which we, we see sometimes states and regimes engage in violence against civilians. They do it to kind of crush the civilian support base for guerrilla forces. But there are so many features of the mass killing in Guatemala that are just really puzzling from a kind of that sort of perspective of Okay, groups sometimes do this sort of rationally because it's useful for them to engage in violence. The violence is so disproportionate to the level of threat that the regime really faces. It's really hard to understand why the regime targets such an incredibly wide base of um, Guatemalan society, much of which had no collaboration and was playing no role in supporting um, uh, guerrilla uh, forces. So it seems really odd that they would sort of target um, civilians on such a scale. There are also particular groups that get targeted. So the the, the, the Guatemalan military regime targets Catholic movements in um, the parts of Guatemala where the insurgency is somewhat active, not even necessarily that active, but broadly parts of the country where the, the insurgency operates. And that's really weird because the Guatemalan military re- regime is largely Catholic orientated. One of its major support bases is the Catholic Church within um, the country. Um, I'm not going to go into the detail of, of how I think ideology answers that yet. We, again, we might talk about that more in a minute. But um, but it, you get all of these, these sorts of questions arising across mass killings. Why was the violence so extreme? Why was it often so brutal? Why did it target the particular groups that it did? And in general, my argument is the kind of basic social situation or political situation in um, a a particular case, like the fact that they're at war, the fact that they face an insurgency, the fact that a regime is under threat from some kind of political opposition. um, These might be very important in a very general sense in that they establish some basic conditions in which mass killing might become more possible, but they just don't tell us that much about the specific form. that the the violence takes, or even I would say that much about exactly why it occurs in certain cases, um, but not others. To answer that, you need to get inside how the perpetrators understand the crises that they face and how they understand the certain kinds of civilian groups as threatening to them as um, kind of guilty of, of deep wrongdoings against the the regime or the um, society or the in group that the perpetrators take themselves to represent Um, the particular way in which they see violence as the kind of necessary last resort, that there's no other option to it, that all other strategies would kind of be foolish or unsuccessful. Um, These kinds of subjective understandings of the situation that they're in um, uh, really vary across regimes or groups, um, even in conditions of kind of war and crisis. And I think we have to get inside those um, understandings and, and also, as I've suggested already, not just their kind of sincere understandings, but the sort of way in which political institutions um Uh, that are built around ideology might create kind of conformity pressures or instrumental reasons to use an ideology in a certain kind of way. And until we sort of start to grapple with those kind of questions, I just think there's a lot about the kind of character of of mass killings that we we really struggle to explain.
0: Mm. I'd love to kind of pick up on one of the aspects that you've already mentioned you go into in the book. And obviously, we won't be able to go into it in the same amount of detail as the book does. Um, But you do trace throughout the book uh, kind of the differences in how ideology is impactful for elites versus um, rank and file perpetrators. Um, And kind of you've already sort of mentioned it in a few of your sort of examples of kind of, oh, well, there might be this pragmatist reason to go along with it. And there's social pressure and all sorts of things. Um, But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of how you see um, the difference in impact between these sort of two groups across cases and types of ideology.
1: Mm. Yeah, let me start. Let me answer that first by expanding a little bit on something I said earlier on. So I talked about the idea that I think it's best to understand ideologies as a kind of infrastructure um, that sustains collective action. And with respect to mass killings, kind of sustains and shapes the campaign of of violence and that those infrastructures kind of operate through these different causal mechanisms, um, different kinds of forms of influence over people. Sort of simplifying all of that a little bit, we might say that there are two big basic roles that ideology might play for a given individual, let's say they're a member of the political elite, or they're a member of of ordinary kind of rank and file military units or security services who actually engage in the the killing. Um, One role is what I call the more internalized role. So to some extent, the ideology might be believed in, it might be deeply believed in, or it might be much more shallowly believed in. But to some extent, individuals sincerely um, accept the kind of ideas that make up the ideology, its narratives, its values, its aims, its objectives, and so on and so forth. Um, the other way in which it might matter, the more structural side of the infrastructure, is um, that individuals may not particularly believe in the ideology, but the ideology is sort of embedded in institutions and norms that they're subject to. So they work in security services where the ideology defines expected norms of behavior or they are a membership, they're a member of an armed group that has particular ideological objectives that they recognize as the kind of goals of the organization, even if, if those objectives are not necessarily ones that they're personally that committed um, uh, to. Um, so one part of my argument about political elites versus the kind of ordinary people on the ground is that for elites, I tend to think that the more sort of some degree of sincere belief side, the more internalized side of ideology uh, tends to dominate more. So elites tend to believe, I think, more in the ideologies that tend to justify mass killing than do the ordinary kind of rank and file, as I call them, individuals who actually carry out uh, the killing. That's not to say the rank and file don't believe at all. I'll come back to them in a second. Um, But for elites, I think elites often have a relative degree of freedom in thinking about how they understand crises and how they respond to crises and so um ideology i think tends to make a difference for such elites because it actually structures the way in which they think sincerely um, about the crises that they face and why they think that that mass killing such an extreme course as mass uh, as mass killing is an appropriate um strategically uh, um, effective and normatively justified response to those crises um that's not to say that ideology isn't also a kind of more can also function through norms and institutions at the level of political elites. I absolutely think it does. Um, In particular, I think that elites have often used an ideology for years before a mass killing occurs to uphold their political rule and legitimate their political rule. And that creates certain kinds of opportunities and incentives and pressures on them to kind of keep using that ideology or even double down and radicalize that ideology in ways that may be very important in shaping their uh, their, um, decision to implement mass killings. But broadly speaking, I would say that elites tend to sincerely accept uh, an ideology that justifies uh, mass killing um, more than to to an even greater extent than do than, than do like kind of wider societies or the rank and file individuals who commit the killing. At the level of the rank and file individuals, so now again we're thinking about here kind of members of military units, members of paramilitary forces, um, members of security services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think the balance is slightly reversed here. I think that ideology is is um, almost always very powerful um, in terms because of the way that it generates certain narratives that justify the violence, or elites propagate certain kinds of ideological narratives that justify the violence, and ordinary kind of rank and file members of security services or militaries just have to take into account those narratives and norms, even if they don't deeply um, believe in them, they're subject to very strong kind of ideological pressure to go along with the ideological narratives and justifications of violence um, that their kind of commanders, their superiors, um, elites, broader influential figures or agencies within society um, are uh, propagating. I do tend to think that most ordinary rank and file perpetrators Still also do often accept the ideology to some extent, but I think they tend to do so in much more kind of shallow, inchoate, um, informal um partial ways than do elites. i don't I think only a relatively small minority of of kind of rank and file perpetrators do I think could really be characterized as fanatics or true believers um in in the ideological justifications of mass killing. Um, I think they often take them on board to some basic extent. Um, and then also are being subject to very strong social pressure rooted in these kind of ideological norms and institutions um, that they're um, subject to. So that's the kind of basic way in which I, I think that the role is somewhat different uh, between political elites um, and, and rank and file uh, uh, killers. Um, perhaps one other thing that I might say is is that another way in which I'm sort of the, the book is t- is challenging. I think some of the conventional wisdom about ideology's role in mass killing is that I don't think that the kind of grand political projects um, that are sort of focused on in some traditional ideological perspectives, the kind of idea that that mass killings occur because people are trying to completely transform society due to kind of long-standing political projects, I I generally don't think that that's quite right. I think that's true in some cases, but I don't think it's the most important way in which ideology matters. I think the more important way in which ideology matters is that it um, shapes understandings of security. Um, And it shapes in times of crisis um, perceptions of civilian groups as threats and as often as as guilty of crimes. um, And it shapes a belief that mass killing is a kind of strategically and normatively appropriate response to deal with crisis. So it's not really about creating a utopia. It's about securing national security um and protecting the group and 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 protecting society against dangerous um elements or or um you know winning a war for society. I think it's more rooted in in kind of security discourses than it is in utopian discourses. Um, again, I think that's true to a slightly different extent across political elites and, and rank and file groups. So I think at the level of political elites, there are still often some broader political projects going on in the background. So again, we might talk about Soviet Union in a sec. Um, but in the Soviet Union, clearly the, the, well, I guess not absolutely clearly, but I think it's clear that the Stalinist political elite under Joseph Stalin were pretty strongly committed, not just to the ideological justifications of Stalinist violence, but to a much broader kind of vision of um, communism and how communism was transforming societies. And I do think that mattered to some extent in um, uh, in explaining Stalinist violence, although I think it was, it's, it was complicated. At the rank and file level, I don't think that, those grand political projects play such an important role at all. Here, I think it's even more the case that kind of security centric ideological discourses matter most what ideologies do at the rank and file level is basically provide pretty familiar kinds of narratives of these civilian groups are very threatening they've done terrible things it's your duty to protect the fatherland or the motherland or um, serve the military act with duty act with patriotism and that means following the orders of your superiors um, and fighting the the difficult and tough Uh, but necessary fight um, to wipe out these threats to our society. Um, So that kind of more security-centric nature of the ideology is even more, I think, um, central, um, uh, as opposed to the kind of more grandiose utopian visions at the rank and file uh,
0: level. Mm. Thank you for differentiating that, um, because we often do see them at the level of the political elite kind of being merged together, conflated. um, Kind of the utopian one is the one that gets more airtime because it's fancier in a lot of ways. um, But that can often obscure... Uh, sort of what happens on the ground. And then when we do go look at what happens on the ground, we can, it kind of goes, wait a second, what's happening? So um, that's a really useful differentiation. Um, and I do want to get a little bit more into Stalin in a moment. But first, um, Stalin is one of the case studies that you look at in the book. Uh, but you have a quite interesting range of case studies. So I'm wondering if you can um, first kind of tell us what they are, but then explain how you chose these particular case studies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's four the four main cases um, in uh, uh, the book, um, Stalinist repression, um, Stalinist violence, violence of the Soviet regime under Joseph Stalin, in kind of what we sometimes call the long 1930s, which is sort of 1928 to about to 1941, but concentrated in two main periods, um, the, the early 1930s, what's often the the violence kind of associated with the collectivization campaigns, um, as they're called. And then even more so, what I focus on the book is is, is um, 1936 to 1938, uh, often called the Great Terror, Stalin's Great Terror. That's the first uh, case study. The second case study is then um, allied area bombing of Germany and Japan in World War Two. That might seem like an odd case uh, to some people to compare to the other um, kind of famously horrible cases that I'm looking at. But there are reasons I do it. I'll come back to that in a second. Quite persuasive
0: Um, reasons, I will say. I was very very (laughs) pleased uh, when I opened to that part of the book and I saw that that was what the next case study was. Um, I had a bit of glee going, oh, he went for it. Um, and it fits. So I definitely will be asking you about that in a minute.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's come back to that. Um, So Allied Allied Area Bombing of uh, Germany uh, and Japan. Um, Might be just worth saying, very specific phrase there, area bombing. The the chapter is not about all Allied Bombing of Germany and Japan. It's about a very particular strategy of targeting civilian areas. Um, So that's case two. Uh, uh, Case three is then the Guatemalan uh, Civil War, probably a case not known to as many people certainly not as well studied in comparative kind of studies of genocide um mass killing violence against civilians it's, it's a relatively neglected case um uh, the guatemalan civil war runs from sort of roughly the early to mid 1960s through to 1996 but mass killing becomes sort of more prevalent in a really concentrated period in the middle of the civil war um Most of the mass killings occur between 1980 and 1983. The escalation to mass killing kind of starts a little bit earlier than that, 1978. So the case study is sort of 1978 to 1983. That's my focus uh, in Guatemala. And then the fourth case is the Rwandan genocide, um, which occurs itself in 1994, but again is rooted in a kind of broader Um, escalatory series of events and developments in Rwandan society from 1990 uh, onwards, so 1990 to 1994. In each of the cases, actually, I I talk quite a bit about the earlier history of each case. So it's not just focused on the period of the violence, but those are the four main cases. There are some other cases uh, that I talk about fairly extensively in the book, So such as Indonesia in in the mid 1960s sees a mass killing of alleged communists. Um, The wars in Yugoslavia in the 1990s are cases that I've I've kind of uh, know a little bit about uh, and used to some extent in the book. Uh, Obviously, the Holocaust is impossible not to engage with in a book um, like this. Um, So there are other cases that appear quite extensively in the book. But those are the four main um, case studies. How did I select them? Well, um, I guess there were two important impulses here. I wanted some variation that was interesting to the argument and, and kind of set of theoretical questions that i was pursuing so it was for example very important to me to have both some cases or both a case that looked quite like at least superficially the kind of traditional ideological view so in in the book that's stalinist violence like kind of at a certain level you know, everyone thinks of the Stalinist communist regime of the Soviet Union, at least of this phase as being a highly ideological regime. It seems to be like a kind of classic case that would fit that kind of totalitarian model of tra- a traditional model of mass killing, a radical state, a radical group takes over a state, they have incredible utopian plans to transform society, and so they engage in mass killing. Given that I didn't think that story was quite right, it was important, I think, to have a case that looked like it would be suitable, um, that it did fit such a case, and then, and then try and show that, that the pitch was actually much more complicated. Um, then I wanted a couple of cases that really looked very much like the um, more sceptical view. So kind of when people say, Oh, no, ideology doesn't matter very much, they, they generally say, Look, there are just, you know, it's ruthless, it's brutal. Um, but there is a logic to this violence, it's used for certain purposes, it's used to win wars, or to kind of defeat guerrilla insurgencies in civil uh, wars. So that's what drove, that's part of what drove the selection of Allied area bombing in World War II and the Guatemalan Civil War. In a certain sense, they were both kind of classic cases for the argument that there's a kind of rational reason why states engage in mass killing. And both both cases have been viewed by some prominent scholars in those terms. People say that, look, the, the Allies targeted civilians in Germany and Japan because they were desperate to win this war. There weren't many other good strategies. And so they kind of tried to engage in this in this form of uh, uh, Mass area bombardment um, as a means to force the enemy to surrender. Similarly, in Guatemala, look—it's a, it's a, a, a guerrilla insurgency. There are reasons why brutal regimes might target the civilian support base of a guerrilla insurgency. Um, so you might think that there's no need to appeal to ideology in either case. And I picked those kind of hard cases for an ideology-based theory to try and show that even in in cases that that might look like you don't need ideology to explain them, actually ideology. Um, Uh, well, I I thought might be playing a central role and my research (laughs) suggested to me that it was. Um, And then Rwanda is kind of a mixed case. I picked it because it kind of was interesting on a number of different levels. It's also been pretty central to a lot of controversies over the role of ideology. You know, in some classic cases like the Holocaust, again, there's debates about how ideology matters, but a lot of people accept that it matters in some extent. Rwanda is a bit more divided between scholars and it is, there was both a civil war going on, but there was also kind of more genocidal violence um, uh, from the regime that some people linked to its kind of ethno-nationalist racist motivation. So it sort of sat between the other cases. I guess the one other thing I would say about case election, and this might take us back to the Allied bombing case, is I was I'm just uncomfortable with the exclusion of violence by liberal democracies from much of this, research literature Um, i don't think that allies that the bombing of germany and japan was in any sense kind of morally equivalent to cases like stalinist repression for a whole range of reasons but it was a case of intentionally targeting civilians it was a case of mass killing it fits any any kind of standard definition of mass killing Um, and i thought it was really important to examine whether you know you might think that liberal democracies target civilians for very very different reasons than do authoritarian states or it might be that they do them for very similar reasons. So I, I wanted to examine such a case um, from both a kind of research design grounds but also to some extent from a normative grounds. it just I was just very suspicious of a normative bias that goes on when we kind of don't examine violence by liberal um, uh, states. So that was also a bit of a factor in including that case.
0: And that definitely is where some of my glee came in as a reader. Um, So let's go ahead and jump into that case then, and we'll probably circle back after it to Stalin. Um, But can you kind of tell us, um, I think the thing that perhaps uh, is useful to discuss, obviously the case goes into a bunch of different things, um, but because of this sort of bias in the literature around not talking about liberal democracies um, in these areas, I think perhaps um, what might be most surprising to listeners is um, the section of this case study investigation that looks at um, the pre-World War II ideologies from the UK and the US particularly around military doctrine, use of force, et cetera, um, that does the work to create the ideological infrastructure that we've already been talking about this interview that is so key for um, how ideology impacts and influences mass killings. Um, This may not be something that people necessarily think about, but for area bombing particularly in World War II, you show that actually this whole argument we've been talking about so far of kind of um, hardline infrastructural ideology does actually make a lot of sense in the context of Britain and American uh, military doctrine. Could you sort of help us understand uh, or flesh out, I suppose, um, this pattern?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first place I have to start is a lot of people just don't know exactly what (laughs) <laughs> the allied air forces did in in world war Two, um there there was a huge amount of misinformation about it during world war two um and some of that misinformation has kind of lingered on in in myths so you know people believe things like, um, oh, they just targeted railways, they just targeted factories, it was, you know, unfortunate that civilians died, but it wasn't what they were trying to do. I mean, it's very important for listeners of this podcast to understand that that is just absolutely not true. No serious historian contends that anymore. One of the reasons why no serious historian contends that anymore is that the organizers of the bombing campaign, so people like um, Arthur Harris, who was head of British Bomber Command, are totally explicit that they intend to kill civilians in large numbers, that that is part of the military strategy that they're doing it in order to kill industrial workers so as to undermine German industry. And they're doing it because um, of a, as you mentioned, a military doctrine of the time that um, the, the principle or, or the most important impact that bombing had in war was to undermine the morale of the civilian population of your enemy. And if you could therefore cause enough disruption and death amongst the civilian population, um, you would force the enemy to surrender quickly. Um, you would end wars a lot quicker than you would um, if you, if you, you know, restricted yourself to only targeting military or industrial targets, or if you tried to just fight a kind of ordinary land war, for example. Um, so, th- you know, th- there's no, it's important to start with, you know, there's a, there's a thing I'm saying here that is not contentious amongst any specialist scholars of world war ii that um british and, and american militaries uh intentionally targeted civilians um uh, and they did it as a strategy to try and win the war um so then the question becomes why why did they engage and, and that's what i mean by the area bombing strategy right it's uh, one thing i really want to emphasize here is that the the the, 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 the um, british and american air forces also well, there are other air forces of course canadian australian uh, air forces polish free forces and so on but um uh, there was a lot else that they did in World War II that was extremely important to, to winning the war, right? Targeting Germany's oil industry, um, supporting the landings in um, Normandy, targeting uh, the armaments industry. This is not, the, the chapter of my book is not a kind of critique um, of all <laughs> Allied um, uh, bombing policy in World War II. I'm talking about a specific component of that campaign, which was this targeting of broad civilian um, areas to try and uh, and kill civilian uh, uh, workers and and. and kind of demoralize the civilian population Um, and as you say key to understanding why the allies did that is actually a a very distinctive set of beliefs and ideas aspects of military ideology i would say that aspects of political ideology because i think how we think about military action is intrinsically political Um, but it was rooted in a set of ideas that were developed out of world war one and in the interwar Um, period. Um, Part of where I start with that case study is to try and show that, look, if you just go on kind of strategic factors alone, if you just sort of say, look, of course, the Allies targeted these civilian populations. That was sort of strategically natural in some sense. They had few other options. Kind of the, the main argument in the literature from people who don't really talk about ideology is that, you know, they targeted civilians. It was not very effective. It was pretty desperate. But it was because they just didn't have any good kind of precision bombing technologies at that stage. There was nothing else that they could do. And one of the things I try and show in the book is that that's just not a very compelling. Um, explanation of, of why the Allies choose to target civilian populations for a whole range of reasons. It, it, it was a factor that part of the problem was that they could not engage in precision uh, bombing, but the Allies, particularly the British, the Americans are a little bit different, but particularly the British, had argued that you needed to target civilians way before World War II even began. They'd been arguing it for, for pretty much two decades. Um, so it was not like the war came along, they tried to bomb with precision targeting, that didn't work, and then they were like, okay, oh, well, as a last resort, we'll, we'll target civilians en masse. Leading Allied air theorists had been saying for years that the, the most effective way to win war was to target um, civilians. So that's one problem with that kind of oh, it was just because they didn't have any other options um, uh, uh, explanation. Also, the other problem with that explanation is that um, as the war... Maybe you might say, look, Britain in 1940, 1941, really was very limited in what it could do. Um, We had almost no ability to hurt the German war machine. Um, And so we targeted civilians because of few other options. That's not entirely true, but, you know, you could run the argument to some extent. But by 1942, 1943, 1944, 1945... Um, allied options had actually expanded quite dramatically. There were lots of things they could do with with air power. Um, and indeed, many things that they did do, other than targeting civilian areas, were much more effective than targeting civilian areas. And I think, you know, there's not total consensus here, but most, I think, uh, historians of World War II would say, in hindsight, that that, that they should have spent far more of their resources doing things like targeting oil industry, targeting armaments industry. Um, and, you know, the, the, the campaign to kind of target civilian areas really was a terrible failure. Um, it, it, it resulted in obviously enormous numbers of German and Japanese deaths. It also resulted in quite large numbers of um, uh, uh, British and American pilots um, at deaths. And it really didn't achieve much at all. Um, in terms of actually aiding military victory. So the argument of kind of, oh, this was a sort of strategically rational course of action, I think is just very implausible when we, when we get into the details. What actually is necessary to explain why the Allies did this is A, the strategic context. So A, a terrible war, um, an existential war, a war really an important census for the future um, of the planet, um, uh, but coupled with particular military doctrines and ideological beliefs about war that shaped how the British and, allied, uh, British and American uh, and other allied forces responded to the wartime uh, situation. In particular, uh, there were many elements, but in particular, I would say two, two elements were most important. First, an understanding or a set of beliefs about total war that basically said, look, there isn't really a distinction between civilians and combatants in modern mid-20th century war. War has become so dependent on the industrial base, uh, so dependent on civilian support, that basically civilians are just as much part of the war effort as our um, uh, combatants. Right. So just as we would target soldiers, we should also target workers. Right. They're just as much part of the enemy. That was one belief. Um, I think there are various reasons why that belief is deeply questionable. Um, aside from anything else, very large numbers of people killed by area bombing campaigns are children that argument doesn't apply to them at all. Um, but whatever you think about the merits of the argument, that was something that was very deeply believed at the time, by by kind of influential figures uh, in, in the allied governments. Um, and then the second belief was this, uh, this kind of belief I've already mentioned of the idea of like, what, what was called the belief of moral effect. Um, if you target civilians with bombing, um, the civilians will prove very, very vulnerable, they will panic quite quickly, and this will create enormous pressure on their governments to, um, uh, to surrender. Um, uh, Stanley Baldwin, then British Prime Minister, said in the mid-30s to the British Parliament, you know, we have to realise that there's nothing that can stop bombers um, getting through. This was, this was not true. It, actually, in the war, it proved pretty possible to stop bombers with effective fighter forces. But um, nothing said said Stanley Baldwin can stop bombers. So the only way to win a modern war is to bomb uh, the enemy civilians more intensely than they bomb your civilians. That was kind of a big part of the beliefs um, that, as I say, predated World War Two. And so when we get into World War Two, years of military kind of procurement decisions and military training, particularly in Britain, in America, the picture was a little bit more mixed. But this this, this story is is largely true of America as well. A huge amounts of military doctrine were based on the assumption that, well, okay, in war, this is what you do. If you're going to fight a modern total war, you need to engage in this kind of targeting of the enemy uh, civilians. And that theory, that theory of target civilians and they will force their governments to surrender, you know, was a pretty bad theory. It didn't work. Um, uh, in hindsight, it's largely been uh, abandoned. Um, uh, it was based on some very, very flawed premises um, and, and very little good, concrete, hard evidence. But it was an ideological belief. It was very, very strongly sedimented into particularly the kind of air power theorists and leading air officers, um, as I say, especially in Britain, but but also to a large extent in America. Um, And that massively shaped how they responded to the wartime situation. And so that kind of set of ideological beliefs about war, about enemy civilians, about strategy um, is just, I think, indispensable to explain why. It's not the only factor that mattered, but it is indispensable to explain why Um, the Allies uh, uh, chose to do this policy. And indeed, let me say one final thing. Um, One of the ways that we see that is that it was not a policy used by any other state in the war. Um, You know, if, if, if it was really the case that there was a kind of very strong strategic case for bombing civilians to win war, then you would really think that Germany would have engaged in an area bombing campaign of britain um to try and force it to surrender very much the same reasons that the, the the americans gave for bombing uh japan right it's an island nation it would be incredibly costly to invade it by land let's just try and bomb it into submission and in, uh, to surrender well although the germans did bomb um uh, uh, britain significantly they they didn't bomb it on anything like the kind of area bombing scale that britain bombed germany um, uh, obviously the germans did enormous other far worse abuses in the war so it wasn't as though the germans were adhering to some like nice moral principles that restricted them but the german military just never had endorsed that theory of of uh, targeting the civilians um uh, via area bombing in order to kind of force the enemy side to surrender um it was a distinctive ideological set of beliefs that was important in britain um and america and and that 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 shaped how they how they fought the war
0: in many ways, a very sort of clear-cut case, right? We You show in the book the tracing of the development of this ideology um, over the interwar period. It's not like it just kind of suddenly came up, it was one person giving a speech and that was it, right? It was discussions and debates over time um, that then had very clear consequences in the choosing of a particular strategy. As you said, um, there were other things that could be done, other countries chose other things. Um, and in some ways, kind of the fact that it was a choice makes that... Um, Relationship between the ideological beliefs um, and the method, the policy then pursued, much much clearer. Um, right, so again, right. I'm, and in fact I'm glad that,
1: you included. In fact, it. Yeah, in, I mean, in fact, and actually, the, one of the things you just said is is a very good way of putting it. That, that I mean, a central part of my argument in the book, although no one would dispute this to some extent, but is mass killing is always a choice, right? It's never the, really the case that the situation forces a regime or forces a state to engage mass killing. It might encourage it to varying degrees, but mass killing is always a choice, and it's always embedded in both, as I say, the particular real sincere ideological beliefs of those that, that carry it out, but then also the more kind of ideological incentives and pressures created by the norms and institutions that they've used politically over um, previous years. So, you know, yeah, in, in World War Two, you know, I think these are the, the air officers and the political elites generally believed in these theories. But these theories had also become very, very deeply embedded in that kind of a kind of groupthink formed around them in important parts of the government that just led people to go along with um, these theories, even if they weren't deeply committed to them Mm. themselves.
0: Yeah. And there's also something to be said as well about once a theory becomes discussed so much within certain circles, um, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, you don't know what the alternative is. Um, It's it's hard to marshal an argument against it um, when it's not being contested
1: exactly exactly Um, yeah so we need to move beyond the notion of just like deep ideological conviction you know that's a big part of the argument of the book move beyond the idea of deep ideological conviction and see this more diverse range of ways in which ideologies can be absolutely essential even with sort of more erratic uneven levels of belief
0: Hmm. um yeah so i'd love then to go into um kind of the other uh, big power case, as it were, around Stalin, which we've mentioned a few times. And in this sense, this case is is in some ways quite different from the one we've just discussed because um, it's not like it's not (laughs) well-known. It's not like Stalin's great terror is some obscure subject that's received no academic attention whatsoever. Um, There's been a lot of investigation into both what actually happened and why it happened and kind of which type of actor, which level of actor did what, etc. Um, So I'm obviously not expecting you to um, go over all of that territory that's already um, been done. But I'm wondering if you can help us um, maybe add a little bit of that nuance and complexity to these discussions and um, explain how your argument about uh, the influence and impact of ideology helps us understand the areas of confusion around current sort of debates around what was happening with Stalin's great terror.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. So let me let me again, let me take it back to like, as it were, one of the kind of the two main arguments of the the, the book, um, as I sort of said earlier, the traditional view of, of mass killing is sort of that, you know, you have radical regimes with these grandiose utopian political projects to kind of transform society. And that's what generates um Uh, through various kinds of mechanisms, but that's what generates in some sense uh, campaigns of mass killing. The sort of, you know, one of the two big arguments of my book, the first one being that we kind of need to understand ideology in this kind of multi-causal infrastructural way. The second big argument is that that's not true in most cases, right? It might be a factor in some cases that you have these kind of utopian political projects, but I don't think in general that that is the core link between ideology and mass killing. I think the link is much more around security um, and and ideological conceptions of security um the the subtitle of the book is the radicalized security politics of genocide and uh, uh, genocides and deadly atrocities and kind of my argument here is that what goes on in mass killings is actually a lot of conventional very familiar kinds of argument right we are under attack there are dangerous threats there are conspiracies operating certain groups have done terrible crimes they must be punished um, it's our duty to kind of pull together and and um, do these very, very tough soldierly things to do, which is to defeat, um, uh, enemy groups. All of this is kind of the familiar language of security politics. Um, but what happens in mass killings, I argue is that it gets radicalized by certain kinds of ideological conception. So the Soviet union and the Stalinist case is a kind of great test case for illustrating this point, because as you say, this is a very famous case in a lot of ways. And a case that I think most people would see as absolutely fitting the utopian model, right? The, the, um, Uh, the Bolshevik party in in the Soviet Union under Lenin and then under Stalin was clearly you know this is the, the whole kind of notion of utopian totalitarian ideologies largely comes from this state right that it had kind of radical revolutionary visions that it wanted to impose on society and so particularly not so much in I think actually case specialist scholarship on Stalin and the Soviet Union at least not for the last few decades But in earlier scholarship and in comparative scholarship, the way in which kind of the Soviet Union gets invoked in some discussions about mass killing, people have tended to assume that view. They've assumed Stalin the Stalinist regime was so violent because Stalin adhered to a very utopian um, revolutionary um, project to transform society in which certain groups had to be eradicated because they didn't fit in with the utopian vision. Now, the basic argument of my chapter on on Stalin is that's not right, um, at least in various important respects. Um, And here I am, as indeed with all the case studies, to some extent, I'm very, very dependent here and grateful to recent historical scholarship um, that has really challenged that image of Stalinist um, violence. Um, it, It is it's 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 a. I mean, all of these cases are very complicated cases. So I'm not don't want to pretend that revolutionary ideology and revolutionary aims don't matter at all because they do. But one of the, one of the great paradoxes about the Stalinist case, and one of the reasons why the, the kind of more skeptical arguments about ideology, the more kind of strategically focused rationalist arguments of like, oh, states just do this logically when they're kind of under under challenge, it's very brutal, but it's kind of it, it's not that hard to understand. In the Stalinist case, that won't that just won't wash because Stalin's regime basically became more violent the more secure it was, um, which is very weird uh, uh, under those kind of like classic arguments that states states engage in violence against civilians when they become kind of under threat. Um, and indeed, by nineteen, you know the, the sort of most famous campaign of Stalinist violence, the Great Terror in nineteen thirty six to, to thirty eight, in which about eight hundred thousand to a million are, are killed. Um, uh, this really occurs at, to some extent the peak of the regime's power at least prior to World War um, II. Um, by contrast, the, the Soviet regime is much less violent under Lenin during an actual civil war, and it's not really as violent when Stalin takes over, really effectively takes over in 1928, 1929, 1930, when the regime is is still much more vulnerable. Um, so that's kind of puzzling, and and what recent histo- uh, so that's one thing that's puzzling about the great terror the other thing that's puzzling about it is that it actually occurs not at a period of time when the regime is at its, uh, is at its most revolutionary but actually when it's moved into a more conservative phase so if you think about that kind of traditional utopian argument you'd kind of think that regimes would become more violent as their kind of goals, their ambitions become more radical and transformative. What we have in the case of the Great Terror is the exact reverse, that the Stalinist regime was really more revolutionary in 1928 to 1933 and had become much more conservative by 1936 to 1938, and yet it engages in this incredibly intense campaign um, of violence. So the argument, what I, what I try and show in the um, chapter, uh, in the case study, is that the, the only real way to explain this, that this puzzle It doesn't look strategically rational for Stalin to be doing this, nor does it look like it's a a consequence of utopian ideas, is to see that what's really going on here is a deeply ideological and radical vision, but a security centric vision. Um, The the Stalinist regime, I argue, was so violent, um, not because its ultimate goals were so radical, although they were and that's not irrelevant, but because its conceptions of threat, its conceptions of danger and of um, the justifiability of violence and the effectiveness in violence in response to danger um, were so extreme. To put it in another sort of simple terms, the Stalinist regime was so violent because its it's ideological doctrines of security, its ideological security doctrines were so radical, um, not so much because its domestic governance uh, uh, doctrines were were so radical. Um, Now, that's simplifying somewhat because the... The the, Stalin's conceptions of threat were so wide ranging in part because um, he adhered to a revolutionary uh, view of the world. So uh, there is a, there is a linkage there. But as I say, what really happens over the course of um, the escalation into the great terror in 1936 to 37 is not that the regime is becoming more radical in terms of what it's trying to ultimately achieve. In fact, it's moved into a kind of fairly conservative trying to entrench the Soviet order Um, phase of governance. Uh, What gets radicalised is its its understanding of its security um, and and Stalin's perception of threats um, and perceptions of the security um, environment. Um, One final thing I should sort of say here is there is the earlier campaign of violence, the collectivization campaigns of the early 1930s. Some might argue that that looks much more like the kind of utopian image um, of violence. What Stalin was trying to do at that time or what the Stalinist government was trying to do was kind of radically transform Soviet agriculture, collectivised agriculture, um, which created enormous peasant resistance, resistance from the Soviet peasantry, um, and then and, and the regime engaged in huge amounts of violence in that campaign, some people might say, well, look, here you do have the radical transformative goals and mass king, killing being generated um, uh, as a result. I do think that, that that phase of violence is a bit more complicated in this respect, and I do think that revolutionary goals played a bigger uh, role there. But even there, it's important to understand that it, what what's going on there is not that Stalin had a vision to exterminate certain parts of the pe- peasantry which he then did via collectivization what happens instead is that the the regime um, wanted to implement this plan of collectivization because it thought it was v- vital to kind sort of secure food supplies for industrialization, and then when the peasantry resisted, understandably, given that their livelihoods were being destroyed, the Stalinist regime immediately saw this as evidence of like vast international conspiracies, and so used mass killings as a form of of, of incredibly radical repression. So again, I would say that kind of radical. Ideologically radicalized perceptions of security were were what were actually uh, central um, uh, uh, there to that case. And as in the other cases, my argument is that kind of this is really crucial amongst the elite in how they make policies. But then in, in, in critical ways, Stalinist narratives and justifications then filter down into broader society and in particular into the kind of security services that are then actually used to carry out uh, much of the violence. Um, and again, at that level, the picture is more mixed. It's not the case that everyone's a fanatical Stalinist. But there is quite high levels of acceptance of the Stalinist narratives and justifications. And, and those narratives and justifications also create a huge amount of social pressure within state security institutions for people to participate in the violence. So, again, there's this slightly different role that ideology is playing at these different levels. Um, but but it, it seems to me indispensable to explain um, how, how, the, how these campaigns of Stalinist violence uh, occurred.
0: I think it is um, very helpful, and its it makes a lot of sense kind of in the context of the trajectory, as you said, sort of comparing to the 20s versus 30s. Um, and I think that's one of the useful things to understand about ideology and perhaps why sometimes um, the role of ideology can be missed. If we're looking at the moments of violence themselves, we're not always thinking about kind of what the build-up was um, or what other things have happened that, even if they're not directly linked, um, might set up certain norms or might kind of put certain people in power and things like that. And those can have influences that we may not see if we just look at kind of the moment of bloodshed.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's I mean, to, to, you know, to some extent, put my entire argument into like a very, very simple phrase. I argue that strategic context matters, that kind of social context matters, but also ideological context uh, matters. So it's not that ideology just directly dictates these things. But what ideology is dominant in a particular group or society will make a difference. And as you say, that is a product of longer historical trajectories of ideological um, evolution. That's what generates the ideological um, uh, context. So, you know, different cases of war or crisis are not just all alike. They occur in different ideological contexts. And that explains why we see uh, both different occurrences of mass killing, but also different forms of mass killing when it takes place.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm glad we've kind of emphasised that because I think that is a really important um, part of the argument, as well as kind of how you explore the case studies. Um, in the interest of time, we're not really going to be able to go into Guatemala or Rwanda in as much depth. Um, but I think it is worth highlighting that a lot of the discussion around, for example, difference between perpetrators and rank and file continues through those case studies, um, and they're really quite interesting. Um, if listeners want to, obviously, read the book in its full depth, which we're unfortunately not going to be able to do. Um, but what I would like to kind of uh, move to now is sort of this idea of the context and the longer time frame than just the immediate Uh, because towards the end of the book you talk about um, in addition to the many debates you've already outlined for us the debate around kind of ordinary politics versus these catastrophic events or these extreme events where hard hardline ideologies can kind of erupt into mass violence. And we've already talked about the idea that mass violence is a choice. Um, But I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit more about kind of your contribution to the debate around how these sort of hardline ideologies that may seem very extreme and kind of only going to happen once, there's nothing else like the Holocaust type thing. And to some extent, that is true. But how do they relate to the idea of kind of, quote, ordinary politics?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is very, it's a, it's a really great question and it, it's such an important issue because there is a sort of consensus I would say in the literature amongst scholars of genocide and mass killings now that the perpetrators are quote unquote ordinary. What is meant by that is that they're kind of, they're not, they're not generally psychopaths. They're, they're a small minority who might be kind of sadists or psychopaths, but the vast majority of relatively ordinary people. Um, and that's, what's really scary about genocides and mass killing is that it can draw ordinary people um, uh, into it and, um, uh, so a huge amount of the scholarship has been focused on kind of explaining how that occurs. How do we get ordinary people? Um, how do ordinary people become involved in it? That's part of what I think, though, has generated the confusion about ideology. Because again, in sort of certain kinds of traditional presentation, ideologies—the ideologies that support or justify mass killing—seem really extraordinary, right? So that you know, Nazism is you know a, a kind of unique uniquely fantasist um uh, diabolical vision um of uh, the world and that's what undergirded the holocaust and so you know if that's your kind of, if, if nazism is sort of your um your stereotype your archetype of what you assume an ideology that would justify mass killing is going to look like you're kind of left with this sort of puzzle of well you've got this really extraordinary ideology that seems to matter but we're also saying we also seem to now believe that the perpetrators tend to be fairly ordinary at least psychologically ordinary so what's going on there um, Basically, the, the argument, the way in which I think my book interacts with that debate or helps resolve that issue is to stress that whilst ideologies can be extraordinary, ordinary to varying degrees, what tends to go on in most cases, in most places in the cases for um, in mass killings, is actually that fairly ordinary kinds of argument, as I mentioned earlier, to do with security, punishment, loyalty to the nation or the in-group um, uh, soldierly valor, uh, strategic necessity, military necessity, these very familiar, ordinary ideas that are features, frankly, of security politics in every society all over the world. It's the radicalization of those ideas that really most underpins mass killing, the kind of stretching of these familiar justifications into new, more extreme, or radical directions. Um, that's not to say that much of the rest of the ideology, that those kind of radical claims about security um become embedded in uh, might not be pretty extraordinary or indeed not matter for, for how that radicalization process occurs. So, you know, there's lots, there's lots in Nazism that is truly extraordinary and diabolical and so on and so forth. But at the leading edge of the violence, the way in which the Nazis tend most of the time to justify mass killing and the Holocaust, um, I would still emphasize is parasitic on these more ordinary familiar ideas of security politics. The Nazis employ very radicalised versions of, but nevertheless versions of, claims about self-defence, security, uh, punishment, uh, valour, military necessity, and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's, you know, again, the, the, the phrase in the subtitle of the book is radicalised security politics. That's my argument. It, it, the, the, the ideological foundations of mass killing are um, pretty familiar to us, but they are stretched in really extreme Um, directions. And the way in which they're stretched in really extreme directions is generally by certain kinds of narratives. So to put put this all another way, I'm arguing that the perpetrators of mass killing don't tend to have particularly, or aren't committing the violence due to particularly alien goals or values, although they often do become deeply uh, sort of like morally um, uh, corrupted by the violence and and by process of ideological radicalization. But it's not alien values and goals um, that really matter in mass killing. The goals are kind of quite familiar. It's incredibly radical, extreme narratives about the victim groups, about the crises and the situations. Um, Perpetrators of mass killing don't accept that they fight in a world with specific threats um, in which limited violence is what is justified to kind of fight wars and threats. They engage in um, apocalyptic uh, conspiracy uh, theories and um, hugely sweeping, unbounded narratives about the threats that they face um, and how necessary and urgent violence is as a response, how no other options would be acceptable. Anything other than extreme violence is kind of treason or weakness. Um, These kinds of narratives are what allow those kind of more ordinary ideas of politics of security politics to become radicalized into these more extreme uh, forms that that make such extreme uh, violence possible so that is the argument and 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 as as you say i hope it does bring some clarity to this issue of the ordinary and the extraordinary because clearly mass killings are extraordinary forms of violence like some people think mass killings oh well that's kind of you know that's what happens when people go to war well that's not true M- most wars and most political crises passed by without mass killings occurring. So it is pretty extraordinary violence, but it is rooted, I think, in the radicalization of um, quite ordinary people uh, and quite ordinary ideas.
0: Mm. And I think this is where time as well can become an important factor. The idea, as you said, of kind of the ordinary politics getting stretched. Um, One of the ways that that can happen is over time um, without, you know, in tiny little increments that maybe by themselves don't look like a lot of stretching um but you can end up kind of a decade or two later in a very different place than when you st- where you started um, that's exactly right
1: yeah yeah uh, sometimes in some of the literature there's this kind of blueprint image of ideology and violence right the ideology provides a blueprint for the violence but that's kind of been in the ideology all along and I, I just don't think that's right in almost any case what happens is this kind of process of radicalization and escalation in the kind of anything ranging from the kind of few months to the kind of decade prior to mass killing and it's that process of radicalization as you say this incremental shift in ideas and stretching of ideas and increasing circulations of narratives of threat that, that ultimately generate the, the the violence in my view
0: And in a lot of ways this makes sense when we compare it to for example um, military history because uh, you also need years and process to develop for example the technology to carry out mass killings um, even in cases like Rwanda where a lot of the killings were done, Um, by not particularly technologically advanced weaponry, um, you have to import machetes. You have to import rather a lot of machetes. Um, And as we all know now from global supply chains, importing something is not something you can do in an instant. Um, So the idea, I think it makes a lot of sense to think about ideology being something that is a process over time, um, because in sort of classic military history, we're already familiar with that from a technology point of view, from a training point of view, um, that's something we, that it already is kind of a known quantity. So thinking of ideology in similar terms makes a lot of sense.
1: That's right. Th- this is actually not a phrase I use in the book. But one, one way I might expand on that is to say part of sort of what I'm saying is collective violence and mass killing is a form of collective violence. You might think it depends on kind of three kinds of infrastructure, right? It needs a, it needs a physical infrastructure. you need resources, you need uh, and you have to respond to material incentives and and, and uh, acquire weaponry and and um, acquire funding um, uh, to organize these things. It relies on an organizational infrastructure. You need institutions, you need squads, you need agencies, you need bureaucracies to often do a lot of this stuff. Out varies from case to case, and I'm sort of arguing. But it also needs an ideological infrastructure. It needs a set of ideas and narratives and justifications that both underpin the perception that the violence is acceptable, but also communicate its key priorities in its kind of central organising logic. And I don't think you can kind of just reduce the ideological to the physical or the organisational. But but all three are, are really important. So yeah, ideological context and strategic context but also physical, organizational and ideological infrastructure. All of these things need to be kind of properly understood to explain how uh, and why mass killings occur.
0: Well, and in fact, a lot of those things can in fact be identified in advance as well, right? We can see um, different ideologies at work. Uh, We can see some of this stretching, at least if we're looking for it. And we can certainly see military and organizational developments. So what implications then does your argument have for predicting or perhaps even more preventing mass violence.
1: Mm. Mm. I think probably one of the the single most important kind of preventive and predictive debate that I think my work intervenes in, in on is um, the kind of question of propaganda. And to what extent is kind of extreme proliferation of things like hate speech. I actually prefer the language of dangerous speech associated with an important scholar called Susan Banesh um, and others. Um, you know, radical, uh, uh, pamphlets and radio and television, to what extent does this matter? And again, my position here is a little bit middling, right? Like I think there are some very crude images of how that kind of speech and propaganda uh, matters, uh, which I think get things wrong. But at the same time, I think many people have kind of fled away from those crude images. It's like, Oh, well, you know, this idea that propaganda just brainwashes people is wrong. So propaganda doesn't matter. And I think that's a big error. Um, I think in the in the build-up um, and in the, the kind of causation of, 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 of mass killings, the spread of these kind of radical justificatory narratives is really important to generating the ability to actually carry out such violence. So that means that we need to take very seriously in terms of prediction um, uh, the, the kind of radicalization and evidence of the radicalization of social um, discourses. Um, a couple of scholars that were quite influenced by some of my early work in this area, um, Matthew Walton and Matthew Schisler, Um, uh, working with many uh, other collaborators in Myanmar, uh, used some of my framework to kind of think about um, uh, uh, nationalist discourses in Myanmar a few years ago. Um, This was before the big Rohingya uh, uh, crisis that was going on. Um, And they were really sounding an alarm about the radicalization of of political discourse within Myanmar, I think before a lot of other people um, uh, were. Um, And because they were paying attention to the radicalization of that discourse, they could see a, a real risk of worsening Social tensions in Myanmar that then we obviously saw manifest in in uh, uh, far more radical violence um, uh, in the Rohingya crisis and the, and the and the violence against the Rohingya. So um, you know a, a very basic message here is is of course propaganda um, and, and and dangerous speech don't just have this kind of automatic brainwashing power to inculcate people into violence. That's a silly crude model, but they do matter. They make a huge difference in terms of. Um, disseminating narratives, shifting social norms, signaling official authorization of increasingly radical uh, uh, policies. And so, Predictively, we should pay attention to those developments. And then preventively, we also do need to think about kinds of actions that can contest, um, challenge, undermine the reach of um, uh, such violence. I have a a friend and colleague, Rihanna Nielsen, who's doing some work on um, how we might use, for example, cyber technologies to frustrate the dissemination of um, radical propaganda online. That's become a new issue. But there's also a more traditional um, uh, uh, kind of focus on things like uh, peace education in countries that are potentially at risk of mass atrocities or mass killing. You know, none of this is a panacea. None of this is just going to solve the problem. It all has to be put in the context of broader social and material developments uh, within these societies. But there is, uh, I think, a subset of, of political science or, or, and real world politics that just thinks it doesn't matter. And I, and I just think that is not what the evidence tells us. The evidence tells us that um, uh, propaganda and, and speech does matter in a big way, both predictively um, and uh, uh, preventively. Perhaps if I just add one quick coda to that uh, or one quick addition to that, Perhaps one other thing that I think my work should suggest to people is that when people think about dangerous ideological developments and, and dangerous speech and propaganda and things like this, I think the focus is often on like the mass public. What do all the people think? Is there lots of hatred in this society against other um, uh, uh, groups? Um, and obviously that is important, but a, a kind of big part of my argument in the book is that, it's not as important as some people think. A lot of masculines are not very democratic, right? It's not like the people have all voted for them or necessarily even want them to occur that much. So what I think is often more important is the particular ideological commitments and orientations of political elites and also military and state security organisations. So re- recognising that we probably need to place more focus than I think some people do on those, on the elites, the military organizations, the security services, and how you might change them and how you might change their orientation. You know, that's a huge topic and, and a big topic for future research. But that's another thing that I would kind of highlight coming out of the, the research that I've done.
0: Thank you for mentioning that, because I do think that um, it's not just kind of the methods and propaganda and the means of it, but also kind of, well, what's the, if you're if you're targeting disinformation, sort of, that's a big task um so it's worth thinking about kind of what kinds and who and methods and all of these sorts of things um in order for any efforts to even be able to be measured much less necessarily work um so as we come to the end of the interview obviously you've spent a massive amount of time on the book um as you detailed at the beginning this started um in a lot of ways with your PhD work but has extended beyond that um but the book is out now so listeners can read it um But that must mean, do you have something you're working on now or next?
1: uh, I'll say, by the way, just a plug, but it is out now and there is a free, the introduction is freely available on my website. So if anyone wants to not read, not get the whole book, undermining my own sales figures here, but not get the whole book, but read the introduction, they can, they can get that on my website. Um, I'd I'd love to say that I was taking a big break, uh, uh, now, but I'm a workaholic and uh, so I'm not, um. So I am at the moment, I'm mainly doing some some things that are little spin-offs of the book. So some papers that derive from some of the research for the book. But the two, I guess, next big projects is I, I want to build on some of the arguments I've been making about ideology to write a book about how we think about and analyze ideology in general within the social sciences and the humanities um, that I hope will kind of develop a lot of these arguments and help people think um in kind of more wide ranging ways about how ideology makes a difference, whatever they're studying, whether they're studying history, whether they're studying the present, whether they're studying politics, whether they're studying social life. Um, so that, that's one project I want to do. Uh, that book might be called something like analyzing ideology or something like that. But then the the really sort of more next direction that I'd love to go in is, is uh, uh, it, it's hard to not look at the world today and not be worried about extremism. Um, and I think thinking more about the, some of the arguments that I've been making about mass killing, how that extends or is modified in or applies to forms of political extremism more broadly is something I'm really interested in. Um, And in particular, I think it's a problem that extremism, at least over the last sort of 20 years until very, very recently, has been so bound up with terrorism, which of course is an important topic, Um, But I think that forms of political extremism in the world extend far beyond uh, terrorism. And so my hope is that by thinking of extremism in a a somewhat more wide ranging perspective, uh, we might be able to say more about, again, the role of ideology, but also the limits of ideology's role in explaining some of the new kind of extremist political currents that we're seeing um, in the world uh, uh, today. So pretty early stages in thinking about that. But that's that's the kind of next big Uh, direction that you know fingers crossed i might be able to pursue
0: yeah quite a lot to get your teeth into there um so best of luck with that um but while you are off um on these next projects listeners can read the book that we've been discussing um i'm glad you mentioned the introduction available on your website um but as a reminder the book is titled ideology and mass killing the radicalized security politics of genocides and deadly atrocities published by oxford university press just out in 2022 Um, Dr. Jonathan Leader Maynard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's
1: a real pleasure. Thanks so much.